Good morning. I'm John Hanberger, one of the elders, discipleship pastor, and it's my pleasure to bring the Word of God to us uh, this morning. I consider uh, preaching to be a privilege, uh, responsibility, and a gigantic burden, but here I am. You'll find out in a moment why. Uh, we're continuing with our sermon series, which is called Famous Last Words, where we look at the things that Jesus said while he was dying on the cross. And so we'll continue that this morning uh, leading up to Easter. Uh, so far, two weeks ago, uh, Stuart covered the first one, which was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then last week, uh, he covered Jesus saying where he said, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the one we want to cover this morning is in the book of John, chapter 20. So if you want to turn there, that's fine. But before we get into that, I just wanted to tell you a short story about my mother, which has relevance uh, to this morning. My mom died when she was 86 about two and a half years ago in the middle of November of 2014. Uh, she died on a, on a week uh, where Minnesota weather, which is where she, where she grew up and lived and where we went to the funeral. Uh, on the day of her funeral, it was about minus 5 degrees Fahrenheit with about a 25-mile-an-hour wind, which turned it into a 25-below Fahrenheit uh, wind chill. And that's the coldest I've been in about 25 or 30 years. So a good reminder that I don't really want to go up there in winter anymore. But anyway, that's beside the point. My mom was a, a widow for about 22 years. 25 years ago, my dad died of lung cancer, and so most of her, a large part of her adult life, she was indeed a widow. In the last three years of her life, uh, her health got pretty poor. Uh, she had kind of heart issues. Uh, she had fallen and broken her hip uh, twice, uh, and then a dementia had set in, and so she wasn't able to make good and wise decisions. In 2011, uh, my brothers and sisters had the, the uh, opportunity or the burden, I guess, really, to move my mother out of her house where she had lived for 52 years. Uh, because we needed to move her into a, a facility where she could get good, proper medical care on a 24-hour basis. And so that was difficult. My brothers and sisters, uh, there's uh, seven of us. Uh, three bro uh, uh, I'm the third of, of seven. So we had to make those decisions rather jointly. And uh, all of us uh, wanted to, to honor my mom. But um, given that my mother had dementia, we had to make a lot of decisions for her. And so it's fair to say that we struggled with that. Uh, of the seven, there were at least five of us that always had a disagreement with others. And so uh, it was difficult. We had to make decisions about you know, when to take her driver's license away because she wanted to drive, even though she was incapable of doing so. And uh, when to move her out of her house and, and other decisions like that, where to go next and what kind of medical care to give for her. It was a messy and a difficult period, particularly the last three years of her life. And as I said, my brothers and sisters, we all wanted to honor and respect my mom. Um, but at the same time, we knew that we had to make some decisions that were hard ones, uh, including the loss of several of her freedoms, and so we struggled with that. When she died in 2014, uh, my brothers and sisters and I, I we all think collectively felt that we'd done the best that we could, but we didn't really feel that we'd done a great job of easing her into her final days. Now, many of you will face these same issues. In fact, many of you here sitting now have gone through that also, uh, particularly if you're older like me, and if you're young, you have that to look forward to. If you have parents that are in their 70s and 80s, certainly it's something that you need to prepare for now and be praying about and planning ahead. It's um, interesting that the life expectancy for women has increased uh, incredibly, dramatically. People are living longer, and it isn't necessarily that they're living a better lives, particularly in their later years. Uh, medical science has simply figured out a way to keep people alive longer, although the quality of life isn't always that good. The life expectancy for a white woman in 1900 was 51. 
and today it is 81. And so over the decade and a bit uh, since then, uh, our medical science has increased the life expectancy by 30 years. And so that's what we're dealing with as a society today. The Bible uh, says a lot about our responsibilities to our mothers and responsibilities to widows, and we're going to talk a fair bit about that this morning. That's simply by way of introduction, because Jesus, dying on the cross, had to face uh, this very same issue about what to do about his mother. So uh, we'll get into that in just a second. Let me just open in a word of prayer, and then we'll go to the book of John to see which uh, of Jesus' last words we'll cover this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you and praise you for being the God that you are. We thank you that you have made your will for us known in your word. And so I pray this morning as I pray each time I preach that you'd help me to deliver your word faithfully. Lord, no one came here this morning to hear the words of a man. They came here to hear the words of your word, the Bible. And so I pray that you'd allow me and enable me to deliver that clearly this morning. But mostly, Lord God, that your word would have its way in our lives, mine first, and that we'd all be changed as a result. Lord, we thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 19. We're going to cover, pick it up in verse 25. The, the scene is that Jesus is hanging on the cross, uh, hanging by nails, dying even as he speaks. And so uh, we'll see what he has to say in this section of Scripture. So picking it up, John chapter 19, verse 25. You can follow in your Bibles where all the verses will be on the screen this morning. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. So what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack this a bit and answer four questions. The questions are, first of all, who are the players? Who's, who are we dealing with here at this particular scene? The second question is, what was Jesus doing? The third question is, why was Jesus doing this? And then to wrap up, the fourth question is, what does it have to do to, with us? In other words, what does it mean for us? So the first question being, who are the players? Well, there are several people standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus is dying. It's a little more complicated than it needs to be, and so we have to unpack this to find out who the players are. But John, the writer of this particular gospel that we just read, he, uh, he tells us uh, that there were four women and one a mysterious disciple who he calls the disciple whom Jesus loved. So we've got his mother, which is obviously Mary, Jesus' mother. We have his mother's sister. This is Jesus' mother's sister, and therefore it's Jesus' aunt is also there at the foot of the cross. We have Mary, wife of Clopas. We have Mary Magdalene. And then we have this disciple whom Jesus loved. So we have five people. We have three Marys. We have one aunt, but she's not named. And then we have one mysterious disciple who's also not named. And so what I want to do is I want to, want to unpack that. Let's find out who the women are first, and then we'll come back and find out who this mysterious disciple is. So the way that we do that is we can cross-check against the other Gospels. So if we turn back to the Gospel of Mark, Mark gives a similar account, and he names uh, three women standing by the cross. Mark doesn't mention that Mary, that is Jesus' mother, is there, uh, probably because it's just taken for granted that she's there, but he just doesn't mention her. So in Mark 15, verse 40, this is what Mark writes about this. He says, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph 
and Salome. So Mark does a nice job. He gives us all three names. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and a woman named Salome. And then if we cross-reference that to the Matthew's Gospel, we also see that three women are there. Matthew also doesn't mention the fact that Jesus' mother is there. And so in Matthew chapter 27, this is Matthew's account of who was there, uh, picking up in verse 55. It says, There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So we get Mary Magdalene again. That's quite straightforward. We get Mary the mother of James and Joseph. Joseph and Joseph are the same kind of name, so that's the same woman we just described. And then this third person, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who's also not named. Now, who are the sons of Zebedee? Well, that's easy. We can go back in our Bibles and see many references to the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee had at least two sons, James and John. John, who's the writer of this gospel, we just looked at the gospel of John and his brother James. Uh, now, we can figure out who these women are if we make two assumptions. Um, and this is a, a little bit like the game of Clue, if you've ever played the game of Clue, where you have to try to guess who the murderer is, what room the murder was committed in, and what room the, uh, or what uh, weapon the murder took place with. Um, in this case, uh, it's not a board game. It's simply me trying to figure it out for you. I'd love for you to play. We can have those little cards and put them in the slots, and we can cross off each other's names, but it's too many right now to play Clue together. So let's just carry forward. The point is I have to make two assumptions, and I can figure out who they are. The first assumption is that Matthew, Mark, and John are all describing the same group of women. We make that assumption. That's helpful. And then secondly, we have to make the assumption that Jesus' mother, that is Mary, let's assume that, her, that Mary's father didn't name two of his daughters Mary. Only one got the name Mary. And if we can do that, we can wipe away the other Marys and get them out of the way. So we make those two assumptions, and this is what we see. We see that Salome and Mary's sister... And the mother of the sons of Zebedee are all the same person. Just, she's just been described in three different ways in the Gospels. So Salome. And so we have uh, these two women, the two important women. Again, I'm going to take Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph and James. Sort of set them aside. Not because they're not important. It's just they don't have anything to do with my sermons. So let's just set them aside for a second. And we'll focus on these other two women. One is Mary, who is obviously Jesus' mother. And the other is Salome. Salome is Mary's sister, and therefore Jesus' aunt. She's Zebedee's wife, which makes her the mother of James and John, John being the writer of this gospel. Okay, so far so good. You're wondering, where is he going? I'll get there soon. The other thing we need to figure out, who's the mysterious disciple? Because it doesn't say who it was, and I can just tell you right up front that the mysterious disciple that's described in John's Gospel as the, one, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's John. It's the writer of the Gospel himself. Um, John, as he's writing, he never refers to himself in his writing. Even though he's a central character in his gospel, he's there at almost all the events. He never refers to himself as I or me or my. He always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved in the third person. I don't know why he does that. I find it confusing and annoying, but it's, uh, it's scripture, so I, can't, uh, I don't have a leg to stand on to complain. Anyway, he does that. 
Now, how do I know that it's John and not one of the other disciples? Because this description, uh, this description of the disciple whom Jesus loved could apply to all the disciples because Jesus loved them all. Well, it's helpful that John unravels that or, or, or gives us the answer at the very end of his gospel in chapter 21. So turn there with me, if you will, for just a second, just to find out. And I just want to prove to you that the guy he's talking to at the foot of the cross is none other than the writer of, of the gospel, John himself. In John chapter 21, here's what's happening. Jesus has already risen from the dead, and he's come back to visit with the disciples. And they've gathered on a beach, and Peter's there, and this disciple whom Jesus loved is also there. And we pick it up in verse 20, and this is what it says. Peter turned and saw, here he is, the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them. That's following uh, Peter and Jesus. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And that comes from John chapter 13, where, where the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is another, the same description shows up there, it leaned back and asked Jesus, hey, who's the one that's going to betray you? All right. Verse 21 says, when Peter saw him, that is when, when Peter saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, that is the one whom Jesus loved, was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? And then verse 24 is the key. He gives it all away. The mystery has gone. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And so John is basically saying, yeah, the disciple whom Jesus was, he's the writer of this gospel. It's me, John. And so that clears up the, uh, the mystery of the disciple. Now, it's important that we go through it because we have to know who it is that's actually present. So we've got this scene. Jesus is dying on the cross, and we see four uh, prominent people. We've got Jesus. We've got Mary, Jesus' mother. We've got John, and we've got Salome, who is Mary's sister, therefore Jesus' aunt, and therefore John is Jesus' Cousin. Good. Excellent. <clears throat> all right. That's all I have to say this morning. <laughs> Everything's solved. We've all figured it all out. Well, that was pretty simple. But now it takes us to point number two, which is what was Jesus doing? So let's go back. Now that we figured out all the players, let's go back and find out. Read it again. Find out what Jesus is doing. So John chapter 19, pick it up in verse 26 this time. When Jesus saw his mother, that is Mary, and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, that's John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple John took her to his own home. So we asked the question, what was Jesus doing? First of all, we have to say that Jesus was not doing. He was not disrespecting his mother. Many people read this passage and they'll say, well, Jesus is hanging on the cross, looks down at his mother and he says, hey, woman. It sounds very disrespectful in English, in our culture today. And so we wouldn't address a, a lady that way. We wouldn't, just, we wouldn't address our mother that way. But the, the, the word is, is, isn't intended to be disrespectful. In, in Jesus' day, it, the, the, the word is translated correctly, but it, it's, it sounds more like lady, or even better yet, it would be like ma'am. So if Jesus were to say, yes, ma'am, we would, we would recognize that as a term of endearment, a term of respect and honor, and that is what Jesus is doing. He's respecting his mother. But I think there's two other reasons that Jesus didn't simply say, hey, mother, 
I think there's two reasons. One is that he wanted to save her the embarrassment. There were other people around, and he's hanging on a cross like a criminal dying. And for him to address his mother as mother, many of the other people would say, oh, that's, that's, that's his mom. And so I think he didn't want to embarrass her that way. And secondly, I think he didn't want to increase her sorrow. Reminding Mary that this guy hanging on the cross, dying as we speak, is your son, could be quite hurtful. Her sorrow was deep enough, and I think Jesus just didn't want to increase that. So he wasn't being disrespectful to his mother. So what was Jesus doing? Well, when Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold your son, and when he said to John, behold your mother, all Jesus was doing was a very important thing, but what he was doing was he was handing over the responsibility for the care of his mother to the disciple John. Jesus was dying, and he realized he could no longer provide for his mother as she got older. And so he's simply handing over to her, to John, the responsibility for her care as she got older. So saying, saying, saying to his mother, woman, behold your son, he's saying to his mother, John is going to be like your son. And he says to John, behold your mother, John, I'm putting on you the responsibility of her care into her old age. Verse 27 says, that is very helpful in John because it tells us how it turned out. And it says, from that very hour, from that very hour, John took Mary into his own home and he provided for her. We don't know the rest of the story, but uh, church tradition has is that Mary lived another 11 years in John's home uh, and then she died. And so John took on that mantle, took on the responsibility that Jesus had laid upon him and carried it out. Now that brings us to our third question is why was Jesus doing this? Well, Jesus was doing this because Mary was his mother and because Mary was a widow. And I say, well, wait a minute, uh, Mary was a widow, but she had a husband named Joseph. Are you assuming, John, that Joseph was dead at this time? The answer is yes. How do we find that? Well, we don't find it in our Bibles directly, but we can find out from two uh, uh, very clear indications. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when Joseph, Mary's mother, uh, died. Uh, sorry, Mary's husband died. But we've got two clear indications that at this time he was already dead. The two indications are this. If you look back in your Bibles, look at all the references to Joseph, you'll see that the last time that Joseph is mentioned in your Bible is in Luke chapter 2. Many of you will remember this story. Jesus was 12 at the time, and Mary and Joseph together took Jesus and went to the temple to make offerings. And they got separated as they were going back home. And, the, and Mary and Joseph thought Jesus was with some of the other family members, only to discover that he was still back in Jerusalem. So they did a U-turn and went back into Jerusalem to get him and found him teaching in the temple. That's the last time that we see Joseph appear in our Bibles. And so the presumption is that by this time he's dead. The second indicator is that in Jewish custom and tradition, it was customary for the father to take care of the burial arrangements for any child, particularly his son. And so when Jesus died, we, also, we know that it wasn't Joseph, Mary's husband, that showed up to take care of his body. It was a different Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea came and took care of Jesus' body. And we have to assume that's because Joseph was already dead. So Mary was indeed Jesus' mother, but she was also a widow. So what was Jesus doing? Well, Jesus was following two biblical commands. One, to honor your father and your mother. And two, to provide for widows. The first one is easy. Honor your father and your mother is one of the Ten Commandments. We get that directly out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, where it says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, 
and that the Lord, your, uh, that your, the Lord your God is giving you. The nation of Israel understood very clearly that command to honor your mother and your father. In this case, Jesus is honoring his mother. The second command is to provide and to protect and to care for widows. God provides for widows, and he expects his followers to do the same. Uh, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and this, this appears many places in the Old Testament, not just uh, once or twice as one of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 18 says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And it says this, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So Jesus was being obedient to these two commands, one, to honor your mother, and secondly, to provide and protect and to care for widows. Jesus was dying, and so he placed this responsibility on the back of his disciple John. Which brings up some other questions, like, okay, well, why did Jesus give this thing to John? his disciple, why didn't he turn this responsibility over to his other brothers? Because Jesus had at least four other brothers. They're named in Scripture, uh, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Why not enlist his other brothers to care for their mother after Jesus had died? Well, I think there's at least two reasons for that. The first one is that Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus. Jesus' own brothers didn't believe that he was the Son of God. Despite living with him, for over 30 years, his brothers didn't believe in him. We see this very clearly in John chapter 7. Jesus had uh, traveled to Galilee where his brothers lived, and when he had an encounter with them, his brothers made fun of him. They mocked him. They taunted him. Uh, John chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, it says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus was performing miracles, and his brothers were taunting him. Say, go out there, do your thing, show it to everybody. And then the next verse says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now later on, after Jesus rose from the dead, it's quite clear that some or maybe all of his brothers did believe in him. But at this particular point in time, they didn't. And so Jesus didn't want to hand over the care of his own mother to his unbelieving brothers. He just didn't want to do that. Instead, he put this responsibility on John, a disciple, a Christian, a guy who believed in Jesus, who believed that Jesus was the Son of God, the promised Messiah. He gave it over to him. Why? Because Jesus knows that Christian relationships are stronger than family relationships. Becoming a Christian, you enter into a new family. Once you trust in Jesus, you become adopted sons of God, and so the Christian family is comprised of, of Christian men and women, those who have trusted in Jesus. And they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are spiritual brothers and sisters. And they have a common father, God the Father, and the, and the bond that they have, the relationship that Christian brothers and sisters have with each other is stronger than the relationships that family brothers and sisters have. Why? 
Because Christian brothers and sisters' relationships are founded on a foundation, a solid rock of foundation that never changes. And that foundation is belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus knew this. And so Jesus considered John, even though he was a disciple, yeah, he was a cousin, but he considered John to be his spiritual brother. He's very clear on this. If you turn to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was placing more emphasis on Christian relationships than family relationships. At one point in Matthew chapter 12, his brothers and sisters and his mother were coming to see him. And a guy came up to Jesus and said, hey, uh, your mother and your brothers and sisters are here to see you. And in Matthew chapter 12, picking up in verse 48, this is what Jesus said. He said, but he, it is Jesus, replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my brothers. Sorry, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so one of the reasons that Jesus chose John is because he's a spiritual he had a spiritual, strong spiritual relationship with John, which was stronger than the relationship he had with his own family brothers. Now, there's a second reason why Jesus didn't place a, a responsibility for caring for his mother on his brothers. And the answer is that he had a better option. He had a strong relationship. He had a really good friend and a cousin named John. Jesus had 12 disciples, but we know that he loved all of them, but we know that he had a special relationship with three of them, Peter, James, and John. We see this repeatedly throughout the Gospels, that, that sometimes he goes all, all together with the 12 disciples, but every now and then he picks three of them and goes off and does something special with them. It was always Peter, James, and John. He took them up on the mount and was transfigured before them, but only Peter, James, and John were there. There was a guy named Jairus whose daughter had died, and Jesus went into Jairus' house, and he raised her from the dead. But he only invited Peter, James, and John to come along. And then on the night before he died, Jesus was praying in the garden. He said, Peter, James, and John, come with me. We're going to go here in the secluded part of the garden. We're going to pray together, just the, three, just the four of us, me and the three of you. And so we know that, that John had a special relationship with Jesus. And so John was a, a great choice for that, because not only was he a, a Christian, but he was a close friend and his cousin. And so he chose him over his own brothers to take care of his mother in her old age. So that brings us finally to question number four, which is what does it mean to us? What does this story mean to us? What do we take home from it? And I think there's, there's at least four things that we can take away. The first thing that we take away is just an observation that Jesus, right up to the end, loved people. Right up to the very end, on his dying breath, he loved people. He's hanging on the cross, and he's dying. And he's in agony, and he's in pain. And he cares for people. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The second thing we see is that our Christian family is more important than our biological family. We see that very clearly in his choice of John over his own family brothers to take care of his mother. The third thing we see is that God really, really, really cares about widows. God really cares about widows. He has a special concern for widows, for orphans, for sojourners, for anybody, any people who are, are disadvantaged in some way, who are are weak or defenseless or vulnerable. 
God really cares about them. He has a special care and a special desire to see that they're protected. If you go back in your Old Testament and you do, you could even do a Google search and just look for the number of times that he talks about widows or orphans or fatherless, which is often the term that's used, fatherless instead of, of, of orphans. You'll find that over 30 times in the Old Testament, God commands very specifically to care for, to protect, and to provide for widows and orphans, sojourners, and other people who are disadvantaged or vulnerable. Over 30 times. The psalmist, in Psalm 68.5, he describes God this way. He says that God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. And God keeps out, uh, has a special eye, keeps a special watch on widows and orphans and sojourners and those who are disadvantaged and vulnerable. Psalm 146.9 says this, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Why? He watches over widows because they're vulnerable. They have no husband to protect and to guide them and to, and to care for them. And oftentimes they don't have any income because their husband has already died. Orphans have no parents. They have no father and no mother. Therefore, they have no one to care for them and provide for them, and so they're vulnerable, they're weak, or they're defenseless. And God says, protect them. He tells us repeatedly to protect them, watch over for them and care for them. In Jeremiah 22, 3, for example, this is what he says. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. You see, he's caring for those who are vulnerable, those who can't defend themselves. And he says, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. And God is so passionate about this that he calls down curses on people who don't do that. Curses. Exodus 22, 22-24 says this, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children will become fatherless. That's a serious curse. It's an indication that God has a special place for widows and for orphans, for the fatherless, for the, for the sojourner, for those who are disadvantaged and vulnerable and defenseless and weak. And he wants us to have that too. And this idea doesn't, doesn't sort of stop once you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. No, it carries on. We have New Testament uh, descriptions of this also. And the best is, is Paul's command in his, when he writes to Timothy. And he says that, look, if you've got a widow in your church, if she has children or grandchildren, those children and grandchildren are the first line of defense. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and in verse 3 and 4, it says, Honor widows who are truly widows, that is, those who are truly alone. He said, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, that is, the grandchildren and children, first learn to show godliness to their own household, that is, to the widow, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And so as individual Christians, uh, children and grandchildren are, are the first line of defense for widows. And then as a church, if there's a widow who's, who's a truly a widow, that she has no children and no grandchildren to care for, it's the uh, responsibility of the church then to step in and to provide and protect and care for the widow. And the same applies to orphans. So 
It's clear what Jesus is doing. But looking back on this encounter where Jesus is on the cross and, and his mother and, and John are there and he places upon John the responsibility for caring for his mother, you know what the really amazing part is? The really amazing part is that Jesus arranged for the care of his mother while he was hanging on the cross. That should seem really weird to us if we just take it at face value. Because we know that Jesus knew when he was going to die. It didn't suddenly sort of creep up on him and he got arrested and he got crucified. And you're thinking, well, maybe he forgot. Maybe he forgot to make arrangements for his mother. And so he's sitting up there on the cross, and he's looking down, and he goes, oh, crud, I forgot to take care of my mother. He looks down, and he sees his mother, and he sees John, and he goes, uh, John, you take care of her. No. You don't buy that, I don't buy that. Jesus didn't forget. Jesus had this plan all along. I suspect he talked to John well in advance. But we don't see that written in our scripture. No, Jesus waited until the very moment when all of the eyes of Jerusalem were on him. And all the eyes of us, as we read this account or in our Bibles, are on Jesus. What's he going to say on his cross as he's dying? What is the last thing he's going to say? Because it's got to be important. Jesus waited until that very moment while all eyes were on him, and he could, he could offer this, this grand command. Honor your mother. Protect your widow. This is important. I got your attention. This is important. And finally, there's takeaway number four. It should not surprise us. It should not surprise us that God places this as one of his top priorities, that we should care for, protect mothers, honor them, and widows protecting care for them. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that one of God's key agendas, one of his priorities is, is, that, is that he places so much importance on protecting the vulnerable and the defenseless and the weak. It shouldn't surprise us whatsoever. Because you and me are vulnerable and defenseless and weak. We were born that way. And then we sinned, and we, we, we carried on top of ourselves the eternal penalty for that sin. And God looked down on us and said, they're defenseless, they're vulnerable, they're weak. There isn't any way that they can solve this problem of their sin. There's no way that they can dispatch the penalty for their own sins. And so God, who cares for the vulnerable and cares for the defenseless and cares for the weak, Send his own son to die on the cross so when I believe in Jesus, I can be forever saved. And so we have this very weird picture of the very Savior that Jesus sent to us to save us. He's on the cross dying for our sins. He's in the process of saving us. And as an illustration of that very thing, a picture of that, he looks down upon his own mother and provides that same sort of care by providing John. Jesus is performing the very act of saving us and giving a picture of what it looks like in real life.
God really, really cares for widows, for orphans, for sojourners, for people who are vulnerable, unable to protect themselves, who are weak, who are defenseless. And we should care too. We should care too. James tells us, James is a, a, one of the J- Jesus' brothers who after Jesus rose from the dead, became a Christian, became a leader in the church, and he wrote this letter called James. And in James chapter 1, verse 27, he tells us that one of the most important things that Christians can do is provide and care for mothers, widows, orphans. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This little phrase, visit widows and orphans, means not just go visit them and talk to them, but provide for them. Visit them often, take care of them, protect them. James is basically saying, saying, do you, do you want your conduct and your, and your character to be fully aligned with the will of God? Do you want your actions and your attitude to be, to be that which God blesses and that which God smiles upon? Then do this. Protect and provide and care for widows and for orphans and for people who are vulnerable, who are defenseless and weak and can't take care of themselves. Because that's really, really, really important to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you. Thank you for being a good, good father who cares for us and provides for us, who loves us. Thank you that you looked upon us and recognized that we were defenseless and helpless and weak and vulnerable, and you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross that we, our penalty for our sin may be paid by him. We thank you, Lord God, that while he was dying on the cross, Jesus drew attention to this very vital point. There was no accident that he picked this very moment when all eyes were upon him to tell us, honor your mother, protect and provide for your widows, guard and protect all those who are vulnerable and defenseless and weak. Lord God, help us today, whatever way it means to do so. Help us to take this on to remember that you really, really, really want us to watch over those people. Help us to figure out how to do that with honor and with dignity and obedience. We pray all this powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.